Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the James McDonald Podcast, where we say love to live to love. That's our focus, that's our passion, and we invite you to let God's Word have that impact in your life right now. Here's Pastor James. I want to just take a second. You know, my wife Kathy's one of the healthiest people that I know. Uh, she just has been blessed with great health her, her whole life, and, and uh, so... Um, when she had that ATV accident last year as part of the Vertical Church Tour and y'all were praying for her and everything, when she had those broken ribs and, and she had to sleep on her back the whole time and the Lord graciously really healed her and, and she's got all that pretty much behind her. But the one thing is because she had to sleep on her back all the time for weeks and weeks and weeks, she got this thing called, like, they call it like a frozen shoulder. And, and so, you know, I don't know what y'all are like, men, but I, I'm kind of, you know, like to be rough with my woman and pick her up and hug her and kiss her and I'll come in, hey, Kathy, how's it going, you know, and stuff like that. And it's always been, you know, kind of okay, but um, not, not, not. We, we drive along in the car the other day and I, I just, I don't know if it was a piece of music or the something or other, but I just looked over at her, grabbed her hand and picked it up. She was to kiss her hand. And she's like, ow! You know, it's, it's. It's uh, careful, it's sensitive, you know, her shoulder, and I'm just not used to that. And uh, careful, it's sensitive, that's the uh, phrase that came to mind when I thought about uh, teaching for uh, several weeks on money. Um, for some reason, uh, maybe because of some uh, broken promises to you or some, something bad uh, that happened in the past, um, it just, people are just sensitive about it. It's a sensitive subject, and so I've been praying that the Lord would help me to courageously speak the truth, but also to be sensitive, you know? So um, let's just take a second and pray together before we get into God's Word. Father, we love your people, and we love what you're doing in our church, and we love you. And I just pray this morning that you would uh, set a watch over my lips, that um, your spirit would just be unusually effective in uh, guiding my thoughts and my heart and my mind. I pray that the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And I pray that you would grant uh, to our people uh, freedom from an overly uh, sensitive uh, heart that we might be able to uh, hear your truth and embrace it. Uh, help us forget about what I think, Lord. Forget about what I've thought or even about what I've believed to be true and cause your word to shape my thinking, my convictions, my priorities today. If you agree with this prayer that I pray in Jesus' name, help me end it. Amen. 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 Well, take your Bibles and open, please, to uh, Luke 16. Uh, Luke uh, 16. Uh, we have studied in this series, God's Money, uh, view it vertically and, and uh, earn it honestly. And the title of the message today uh, in regard to God's money is uh, Utilize It Effectively. Everybody say that. I know, I know those are uh, big words, but come on, lift up your voice. Uh, today our goal is not to view it vertically, not to earn it honestly, but say it. All right, and in that regard, uh, Luke chapter 16 is... Uh, a very calm, I'm not going to really say much about it till I read it. Let me just read the 13 verses. Check this. You, you can't even handle this. I'm just telling you right now. Just turn to your neighbor and say, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> I know, I know. Okay, verse 1. Speaking of Jesus, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and changes were brought to him that, charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be the manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended, what? The master commended the dishonest manager for his 
There it is, shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I would just touch base on a couple things here before we get into the application of the text. Um, <laughs> that parable that Jesus told uh, is mind-boggling. Okay? It is one of the most difficult uh, passages to understand in all of the New Testament. Um, if you were listening carefully as we're reading along, your mind, red flag should have been going off on several. Like, what, what, what did that just say? What on earth? And I would like to suggest to you that uh, because this message has been difficult to understand, it has been avoided. And because it has been avoided, its truth is neglected. In fact, I would, I think y'all are... Uh, certainly way above average, but um, I would say that uh, in the body of Christ, certainly uh, in North America, where my experience base is, I would tell you that uh, what this message is about, which is basically that God wants you to be shrewd. God expects you to be shrewd. Scripture commands you to be shrewd in your dealings. How many people have never heard a preacher or a teacher ever say that before? I'm just going to tell you, I'd never heard it before. I'd never heard anything like that, but here it is. The first time I read it, I didn't get it. The second time or the third or the fourth or the fifth time, I didn't get it. Um, but I have to say that it's very exciting to see the message of God's word yield to careful study. And when you apply your mind, and I, I, I had to kind of write down, well, what is it saying and what isn't it saying and what does this mean uh, exactly? For example, how can Jesus commend a dishonest manager? How can he see a guy sin and then say, well done? Well, uh, so this was really a turning point for me. He's called the dishonest manager because whatever he did in losing his job was dishonest. But he's not commended for what he did that caused him to lose his job. He's commended for what he did after he lost his job. Now, I like that because that seems to me the way the Lord is, right? Even if you've made some mistakes, even if you've done some things you've regret, even if you haven't handled things the best way, even if people kind of call you, like this guy, this was like, he was the dishonest manager. But, everyone say but. But it wasn't over for him, and what he did afterwards was actually worthy of Christ's commendation. So, in fact, it maybe will be a little clearer if we just kind of get the main characters in the story down here. We have an owner called the master. Uh, we have a manager, uh, and then we have really a farmer, uh, in, in essence, or several of them. And uh, basically, the owner was wealthy enough that he couldn't uh, get to all of his fields, job sites, regional offices, if you will. And so he gave the responsibility to a manager. That's the guy that lost his job. The manager's job was to work with the individual farmers, each who had a certain plot of land that they were had an olive grove in, a grove of olive trees, and they were taking the oil or a field full of wheat, and they were harvesting the wheat. And so um, if it's like other parables that Jesus told, and we're not entirely clear, but it, what it appears as though is if the owner said to the manager, I need X from every acre. Whatever you can get on top of that is yours. And so he would go and collect from the farmer what the owner required, and then additional amounts was how he was being paid himself. Let's look quickly at a couple of the key verses. Uh, verse 8 is the first one. The, 
Master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Let's get a dictionary definition out here just so we make sure we know what we're talking about. Shrewd means astute, sharp, piercing, keen, rigorous in practical matters. Um, sometimes it's said of the followers of Jesus Christ that we are uh, so heavenly minded that we are, finish it, have you heard that? We're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. That uh, The deficiency there is a lack of shrewdness. Now, um, Jesus Christ uh, said that he wants us to be uh, wise as serpents, that's shrewdness, and harmless as doves, that's love. And, and uh, I am not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but you might just assess for yourself he wants both. Everyone say both. He wants both. So just assess, am I, am I a, a shrewd, wise as a serpent person who needs to work on my dove, my love? Or am I a loving, caring uh, person who needs to work on my serpent, my shrewdness? Uh, say both again. Both is required. And this is a message about uh, the shrewdness. In fact, Jesus is pretty worked up about it. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, some Bible commentators say, well, um, Jesus didn't say that. That's just in the story. It's his story, duh. <laughs> Jesus is telling the story. So whether it's him speaking or the person in the story speaking, it's still him speaking. Make sense? Let me say this in regard to interpreting this parable. As I struggled to get it, I got a lot of Bible commentaries out and began to study what other uh, people have said this passage means because like I said, it's one of the toughest ones in the New Testament. And it's important that we not come up with a Bible interpretation that is different than what other people have thought. Uh, great minds have looked at this passage of Scripture for almost 2,000 years and I studied a good bit of that. We only want to know what saved scholars think about a passage. The natural man can't even understand the things of the Spirit of God. It's foolishness to him. I, but if, if, if the scholar was saved, and so I began to read this uh, because uh, Peter said that no prophecy of the Scripture is of private interpretation. Next time, which means you can't go down in your basement and just come up, well, here's what I think it all means. Um, it would be a good idea to sort of lean on others. If one of your friends says, I got something totally new from the Bible, just be like, no, you don't. In fact, this is a phrase that's meant a lot to me. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. And I want you to know that what I'm about to say about this passage, you should know this. And if you want to check, I hope you do. What I'm about to say about this passage is in the center of the stream of conservative biblical scholarship over the last, you know, nearly 20 centuries, okay? And that's what it should be. We shouldn't be wandering, well, I've got a new thing, that's scary, okay? This passage is not neglected because the message is a problem. It's neglected because it's just complex to understand. When Jesus says the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, Jesus is saying, why is it the majority of my kids are on the Dove program? And, and, and you're real strong in that love thing, but, but man, I just get a little tired of seeing my, my own children run over by, like a steamroller uh, by people. You, you could turn up your serious, focused, smart, rigorous shrewdness. And then notice this. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That's not a compliment. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Okay, that's flat out shocking. Do what? Well, first of all, uh, I studied that, those two words there, unrighteous wealth in the original language. And, and uh, I'm glad to be able to tell you that, that what that really means is um, unrighteous wealth. <laughs> that's the kind of insights you come to Harvest for, isn't it? And... and Unri unrighteous wealth simply means a base, earthy, um, 
You can't take it with you. Turn to your neighbor and say, you can't take it with you. And, and it, doesn't, it, you can't, it doesn't improve your standing. You can't buy your way to heaven. It, it's not going to increase your righteousness. You say, well, what good is it? Well, that's what he's trying to say. Make friends for yourselves. Use what God has given you. Actually, some translations have the word mammon here, which is less about currency and more about possessions. Use what you have. You got a car? You might consider picking up some kids and bringing them to high five this summer. You, 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 might, you might think about picking up someone who can't get out to church. You, you should be using what, you got a house, you got a condo, you got a place where you live. You might uh, consider uh, uh, sharing that with someone, letting someone stay with you, uh, um, opening your home and showing hospitality. Why? It's right there. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, and it will fail, life will be over and you'll be in a box and your soul will go into eternity and none of your money's coming with you. Naked we came into the world, naked we're going out. That's what it says in 1 Timothy. So that when it fails, they, they who they, the friends you made, may receive you into eternal dwellings. The idea is, is that the ones most in need of our unrighteous wealth are the poor. And if we don't close our heart to them in callousness, but if we open our heart to them and give to them and share with them and bless them and reach out to them as we should as a church and as we should individually, then given the difficulty of their life, very likely some of them, if not most of them, will predecease you. And because they predecease you, when you arrive at heaven's gates, Guess who's going to be there to welcome you and say, thank you for not being selfish. Thank you for expressing the love of Christ in such a practical, tangible, shrewd manner so that my life was impacted and I knew that your Savior was real and, and I gave my life to Christ because of your example and now I'm in heaven and I've just been waiting here for you to get here so that I could thank you for that. Awesome, awesome. Now I get it. That verse, I just, what, what, what? That's what it means. Now, let's circle back and go through the verses, and I want to share with you, and praying that the Lord will help me. The message is money, utilize it effectively. And here's five principles from the passage. Here's the first one, starting right at the beginning. Uh, value what you have. Value what you have. Don't waste it. Okay. Value what you have, don't waste it. Look at the text with me. Jesus said to the disciples, here comes the story. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him. We don't know where the accusations came from, maybe from fellow workers, maybe from clients that felt ripped off. But eventually, there was a group of people that got to the owner and said to the owner, um, yeah, your, uh, your boy there, help me finish these sentences. He's robbing you. He's taking you to the, he's ripping you. All right. So yeah, you could have did this. And he went right around the middle guy. And so when the owner heard this, you can see it. He's wasting your possessions. He called and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In the immortal words of the head apprentice, Donald Trump, he said to the guy, he said, what? You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. But what's really interesting is it wasn't one of those where security meets you in your office and you put all your pencils in a box and they escort you to your car, okay? It wasn't that. He actually apparently shrewdly gave the guy time to get to his clients, to settle the accounts, to work it. Did he give him a day? Did he give him a week? Did he give him 30 days? We don't know. But he gave him time uh, to settle everything up. And that's why it says in verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Just underline in your Bible there, what shall I do? 
Do you hear the regret in that? What am I going to do? What am I going to do now? I got fired. What am I going to do now? Yeah, you should have thought of that. You should have thought of that when you were overcharging the farmers. You should have thought of that when you were underpaying the owner. You should have thought of that when you were sitting in your office complaining about your job instead of doing it. You should have thought of that when you were complaining about your work and resenting how hard it is. Most people don't need to be unemployed very long to come to the realization that they should have valued more highly what they had. Instead of coming to work late or not showing up at all, instead of sitting in your office with the door closed trying to set the world record in Donkey Kong, Maybe you should have valued what you had. The scripture says that he wasted it. He wasted it. He took it for granted. We should be thankful for our jobs. And we should see them as a privileged opportunity. And we should make sure that we give a day's work for a day's pay. We should make sure that we do. That was really the message last time. Value what you have. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. I think sometimes we tend to look at what we have and we think it's not that important. Let me tell you this. Um, All you need to get where you're going is to utilize what you already have. All right? All you need to get where you're going is what you have right now. Do you understand that? What you have right now is God's provision for where he wants to get you next. How awesome to be where I am right now. This is where I need to be to get where God wants me to go next. And it's really, really important to cultivate that mindset. God has brought me to this place In spite of myself, this guy was dishonest, but what he did when he got humbled is why he's commended. So it's not too late for you, and it's not too late for me. Value what you have, don't waste it. And then this, plan for the future. Don't rationalize it. What's your financial plan for the future? Well, I don't know, I don't know, I, I, I got I just want to, I, I got this pair of shoes I've been looking at at the moment. What's your plan? What's your plan for the future? Say, well, I don't know if I have enough to have a plan yet. Stop, don't rationalize it. Notice here in the text, starting in verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I, this guy's really good at talking to himself. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, verse 4, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he got them all lined up. We're just going to hear about two of them. But one by one, he called them in. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of oil. Take your bill, write 50. Next guy, how much do you owe? hundred wheat. Take your bill, write 80. Bam. Now, you've got to put yourself into what's really happening here, I think, uh, to be able to appreciate uh, what's really going on. And uh, this was not a, a pleasant conversation uh, that he was having here. Do you understand? That was not a fun day for him. Uh, not at all. Eric, come on up here and help me for a second. Um, I'll be uh, the manager and, and uh, come on, a little faster. You're, you're, the, you're the farmer in this story. Okay, so he's calling them in. Picture a line behind this. Picture this conversation uh, happening over and over. Hey, thanks for coming by. Really appreciate you uh, being here today. And um, uh, here's the thing, okay? Um, We've known each other for a long time, and I've enjoyed our conversations, you know? Remember those Friday afternoons? We'd kind of sit around and shoot the breeze. And I always like coming by in here, and you've done a great job with our land. And, and, uh, 
you know, you always seems to have mostly paid your bills in a good way. And, and uh, I got something I got to tell you, though. I haven't always been honest with you. And, uh, you know, some of the times I would collect from you, but then I would, I would uh, take, you know, more than was what was my share. And what you thought you were given to the landowner, you know, it, it, was, it was less than that. He was asking for less. And I, anyway, here's the thing, okay? Um, I know that was wrong. And uh, now right there, the guy's going to be like, why are you telling me this, right? Does everyone agree? Why now? Why now are you telling me this? All right, well, here's the thing. I got fired. You know, he found out, and I lost my job. I'm not going to be seeing you like this anymore. And uh, the truth is, I don't even know if I'm going to have enough finances going forward. But um, rather than take this last little opportunity to get more from you, because I don't know where my finances are going, um, I'm going to give to you the whole share that would have been mine, what I would have taken. That's why you can just write me 50. That's why you can just write me 80, because I'm taking my part out of it. And it's maybe not going to give back everything that's owed to you, but it's just my way of saying, you know, that I've been wrong, and, and I've just been wrong about it. And I'm hoping that you'll see it in your heart, you know, down the road, um, that uh, maybe I hadn't done this, you know, like I should have, but I'm trying to end well, okay? All right, thanks for your time. Okay, thanks. I'm going to say he probably didn't get many hugs. That's, that's, that's a good friend of mine. Now, so is that a good day? You looking forward to that? You looking forward to 10 or 15 or 20 or 30? How's that week going to go? Over and over and over. Some are going to be angry. Some are going to be resentful. Some are going to put it back on you. What this guy did was awesome. He humbled himself and said, I've been wrong. I'm going to do what I can to make it right. Now, that's just incredibly important. I can't overemphasize how much good is going to flow to your finances if you can get on this point of humility. Humility. If you're struggling in your marriage, the first step forward is a day, just, just some humility. Go to your spouse and say, you know, I've been wrong. I, I've been thinking wrong things. I've been, I've been, I've been acting wrong. I, I, I start with humility. That'll save your marriage. If you're struggling in, I don't know, in, I don't know, with sexual sin. Start with humility. I've been outside the lines. I've been disobedient to God. I'm going to humble myself and make this right. The same thing that saves your soul is humility about your own sin and faith in Christ to forgive you is the same thing that will save your marriage. Humility about how you've been acting and faith in God's word is the same thing that will save your finances. Humility about what you've been doing, the choices you've been making, and then toward God, faith in his word and what it says. And today his word's calling for a little more shrewdness, a little more self-control, a little more planning for the future. You say, well, why doesn't, why doesn't everybody do that? Uh, here's why. Um, here's a picture of a car that I bought uh, in 1983. Uh, don't be jealous of this. <laughs> this was a Ford Escort, and uh, my father-in-law worked at the Ford Motor Company, and uh, Kathy and I were going to get married that year, and, and uh, we were driving 100 miles each way to a church to work, and but I was only making like $150 a weekend for serving in this church. And uh, I couldn't afford that car. It was a bad decision. I should never have bought it. And I rationalized it. Well, I'm getting a good deal. And, and, and well, we need to be safe on the roads. And it's not fancy. But it was more than I could afford. And I was beyond my means. And it put a lot of stress in my marriage early on. To make matters worse, uh, we still had that car. That's the car that our oldest Luke... Uh, Landon and Abby weren't even born, but Luke was in a little car seat when, when this family came to Chicago in 1986, and uh, I was in seminary, and I was still making my last car payments, and I, it was just such a bad decision, and then to make matters worse, I was told that if you let this engine get past 75,000 miles, the, the drivetrain's going to break, and all the valves will get bent, and you're going to have a big repair on your hands. Problem was, as I was uh, not making enough and, and 
I'm not saving enough, and so I kept putting off, you know what I'm saying, you put off the repair, you put off the repair, all of a sudden one day I'm driving along, and, and bam, the engine goes out, happened for the first time in Canada, and I had to go to my dad and humble myself and, and borrow the money uh, to fix it. That happened at 75,000 miles. Now, what's two times 75? So as the car was approaching 150,000 miles when I was living here in Chicago, harvest was already underway, but again, we could just barely make ends meet, and I kept putting off, putting off, putting off that repair. I was driving my kids to Christian Liberty Academy in Arlington Heights. Bam! The engine brakes again. You think you felt stupid the first time. But I couldn't afford the repair, but I couldn't afford the... Then I had to set the car aside. Kathy had a car by this time, but I had to walk to work from Arlington Heights over to Rolling Meadows. I walked to work in 1992 a lot of times, and then a man in the church, I think, took pity on us and gave us this car. So sometimes I still walked. <laughs> His... Uh, his name was uh, Gare, and he was really a nice guy. We called this the Gare-mobile. It was a 1980 um, uh, car. It was, it was less than the one that I had just junked. And I, interesting, I owned three houses at the time, but I'd learned some important lessons, and I wasn't going to cheat my plan for my financial future, for my family, and, uh, and then uh, treat myself or comfort myself with... And so I probably could have afforded a second car by then, but I, I drove that car for a couple of years and then gave it to somebody else until I... Now look at, look at... But people have a lot of reasons why they're not willing to do that. And this shrewd manager and this lesson on shrewdness would say to you, well, here they are, three rationalizations people give for not doing something like this. Uh, number one, uh, they say, well, I just can't live like that. I can't live like that. We can't make no, we can't make, we can't live there. We can't drive that. We're better than that. Really, are you better than that or are you foolish? You're foolish is what you are. You're living beyond your means. You're spending more than you make. You're going into debt. The most destructive thing is consumer debt. Consumer debt. Things that don't appreciate, things that don't last, things that are worth half when you drive off the lot. And a lot less three years later. So, it's the number one rationalization. You say, I can't live like that. Well, you need to swallow your pride. We've had to. You should too. Now, secondly, people say, well, um, I got to have that now. I, I have to have that. I can't live without that. I, I saw uh, this, this pair of shoes, this, this special dinner. We, we look, look, look. If you can't afford Olive Garden, eat at Denny's. Okay? And, and Denny's, that was the worst thing I could think of. <laughs> I, if, you, if you're new to Harvest, I've been bashing Denny's for years. I still do go there. But we, we, we say you don't go to Denny's. You just end up there. If you go in and talk to the people there, everyone's got a reason why they're there. Like, well, you know, it was late. It was the only place that was open or it was the closest or... or, or. Nobody's like... Nobody's like bragging about it. I was at Denny's today. <laughs> All right? Right? True? So you got to get on that. that. If that's what you can afford, if that's what's reasonable, it's shrewd to live within your means. And then this rationalization, we can't live like that. Um, I got to have it now. And uh, here's, this is the worst one. I can't earn more. I need more, but I can't earn more. Get a second job. Well, I golf on the weekends. You can't afford to golf. And if you had another job, you'd be going ahead instead of going backward. Get a third job. Well, I don't, I don't want to work that hard. You're not shrewd. You're not. All right. Delay gratification. You won't get forward financially unless you can delay gratification. We've got a little chart here I want to show you. It's actually original with Ron Blue. It's the five uses of money. And uh, I said to Ron Blue, can I use this? He said, he said well, it's copyrighted, so copy it right. <laughs> and and uh, it's pretty straightforward, really. 
um, you have a certain amount of income coming into your life, into your household. We're going to talk about giving in the weeks to come. We talked about taxes and being honest last week. Uh, up on the right here are the two problem subjects. Lifestyle. Should we eat at Olive Garden? Should we eat at Denny's? Do I need a new pair of shoes or are these ones fine? Where can we afford to live? That's lifestyle. And if you make those decisions wrong, it starts to get wrong like this. And all of a sudden you have more, look at this, more lifestyle demands, that means more debt. And then it gets worse. And more lifestyle demands and more debt. And before you know it, you got tooth, I gotta have, I gotta have, I gotta have. And you're not shrewd. And you put yourself in a big, big hole with debt, consumer debt, that is the result of poor lifestyle choices. You didn't have to have that. That didn't increase your happiness. That didn't make your life better. In fact, it's created a ton of misery and it's brought tension into your home. What should we do? Well, you should humble yourself like this guy did. You should go to your spouse and say, look, I'm sorry for the pressure that I put on our marriage by thinking that things would make me happy. And I'm sorry for my lack of contentment. And I'm sorry for pressuring you to get us in a, into a better place to live. And, and some of you need to go to your parents. And, and the pressure that you put on to go to the college that you wanted to and the debt that was the result of that. And foolish, not shrewd choices were made. And now you're living with the results. Utilize money effectively. Value what you have. Don't waste it. Plan for the future. Don't rationalize it. And then this. Operate shrewdly. Heaven rewards it. We've talked about this already from verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Again, sharp, astute, piercing, keen, rigorous, impractical, yes, financial matters. The master in the story is Jesus ultimately. And this is a story about us. And they were commended for their shrewdness in dealing with their own generation. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness for the sons of this world are more shrewd. Jesus is like, why, why aren't more of my kids like this? Why is this, Jesus is like, why is it that everybody turns my sincerity into simplicity and stupidity? Why is it that my children take my niceness and make it naivete? Why is it that my children take my grace and make it into gullibility? I've been wrestling with that because I love you and I was getting ready to talk to you about all of this. And I think one of the problems is, is that I think that we confuse the behavior ethic of Christ with the business ethic of Christ. And let me try to explain that. The behavior ethic of Christ is how we relate to each other personally. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, he said that if someone slaps you in the cheek, what are you supposed to do? Tell me. Turn the other cheek. And if someone asks for your cloak, give him your tunic too. And if someone, uh, uh, do not refuse the person that asks you. And so we take the behavior ethic of how to relate to people personally and how to deal with offenses and we extrapolate that into the business ethic of Christ. Let me say it this way. Check this out. Stop turning the behavior ethic of Christ into the business ethic of Christ. That's it. Stop turning the behavior ethic of Christ into the business ethic of Christ. Now look, there's a danger here and I'm walking a fine line and I know it. Shrewdness is not rudeness. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's not wrong to expect a day's work for a day's pay. It's not wrong to think about and plan for and invest in a financial future. Why? Well, the sons of this world do it so that they can pad their own here and now, and they have nothing to look forward to in eternity. But because we've surrendered to God's purposes, we manage what he gives to us shrewdly for the sake of his kingdom. And we invest what we have in impacting the lives of others. Whatever you have, we use it for the Lord so that someday we'll have some friends 
to, man, I've been waiting here at the gate for you to get here, and you used what you had, and it blessed my life, and that's part of the reason I'm here. That's shrewd. Are you doing that? Keen, exacting, precise. So I'm driving into the Elgin campus uh, today, and uh, I appreciate all the people that park all the cars in every service. I mean, I really appreciate them, but I couldn't help but notice that it was past the time when the police officers that we pay uh, to be out in the intersection to get people. How many people have seen the police coming and going? Well, thank God for them. You should, I'm sure you know, we pay them. They make a good wage. They make overtime to do that. And I drove in, and at the time that they were supposed to be there, they weren't there. Should I turn the other cheek? <laughs> I don't think so. I came inside and said to somebody, hey, go find out why those guys weren't out there. Maybe there's a good reason, maybe there isn't. But it's not wrong to expect to get what you pay for. It's wrong to be rude about it. But it's not wrong to expect it. And then I came into the parking garage, and we have so many wonderful, wonderful uh, parking volunteers here, and I thank God for every one of them. But none of them were in place this morning. I can't remember the last time I saw that. You know, maybe their prayer meeting went over time. Um, but I said to the same person, go find out where those parking volunteers were. We need them on site. And if they go talk to them, like, well, we were praying, should we just be like, well, that's okay, keep praying. No, no, God wants your prayer meeting to be over in time for you to be in place to do what we need you to do. Now, if you think that's not Christian, you're not balanced in all that the scripture says. You're taking the, the behavior ethic of Christ and you're using it to operate in these matters. Look at, look at when, I, when I have to, and it happens all the time, when I have to say to a staff member, that's not good enough. I always say things like this. Look, it's not personal. What we're doing is, we're, this is for the Lord and he deserves our best. And people in our church work really hard so that we can have these jobs. And we need to lay down our best all the time. And anyone who knows me knows I'm like that. And all of our main leaders are like that. And that's not wrong. And it's not ungodly. It's shrewdness. It's managing wisely for the sake of eternal purposes. Clear? All right. Operate shrewdly. Heaven rewards it. And then this is really important. Start early. God blesses it. In verses 10 through uh, 12, we have three observations or comparisons. Here's the first one, verse 11. Do you see them there? Well, first of all, he says in verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is faithful in little is faithful also in much. Now, some of you were hearing this message and you were saying to yourself, well, I, I, I don't really need to invest for the future. I don't really need, I don't have very much. But let me show you how this uh, diagram actually works. If you, uh, let's see the big picture here. Um, those are the five uses of money. And if you get that right, notice the center one, saving, investing. If you don't let your lifestyle get out of control, if you keep debt down below 30%, we say, of your total income, if you do your giving and your taxes, where that flows to is this. It flows into long-term goals. Shrewd people get to the long-term goals. Foolish people never get past hand-to-mouth, hand-to-mouth, when's our next paycheck, can we make it, will we get there? But shrewd people, that's a, that's a college, young adult thing. You get out of that by living below what you make, and eventually you can start investing a little bit in financial independence, charitable giving, like legacy giving, we would say, uh, getting out of debt, which is absolutely critical, um, lifestyle desires. It's not wrong to plan for some things, like this is our 30th wedding anniversary this summer, and I've made a preparation and plans for Kathy and I to go on a special little trip by ourselves, and I wouldn't apologize to anybody for that. That's the result of shrewd management. And then um, family needs. What if someone in your family wants to go back to school or has a health crisis, or don't you want to be in the position? Some of you are like, you're on your own, I can't help you, which is the same way of saying I've managed poorly. I can only take care of myself. But by the time your kids need your help, it'd be awesome if you were in a position to give it. And um, then you could start a new business. There's so many opportunities that open up to you from shrewd management and living 
on less than you make. But sadly, many, most, do not. And so if you were saying to yourself, well, we only have a little bit. Here's what you need to understand. We learned last week, he who gathers wealth hastily, hastily fails, but he who gathers, remember, little by little, little by little. And in the weeks to come, I'll show you what $10 a month does if you start in your 20s and what $100 a month does. You don't ever touch it. You don't ever touch it. It's for down the road sometime. And you begin to gather and build and gather and build that. And it's for the Lord that we're doing this. And everything that we have is the Lord's. And all that we have will be returned to the Lord in a lot better condition than we got it in. That's shrewd management. Start early, God sees it. If you treat little responsibly, you'll get much. One who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who's dishonest. Isn't it interesting? It calls the person who fritters their money away foolishly. It calls them dishonest. One who's dishonest in a very little, well, what are they dishonest about? They lie to themselves. I need this. I got to have this. I can't live there. You're lying to yourself. Who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? In other words, if you can't manage your money well, who's going to let you manage and impact people? This is also in 1 Timothy where it says that the elder, one of the characteristics of an elder is, is that he has to be able to manage his household well. For if he cannot take care of his own household, how will he manage the church of God? I wish someone had told me this a lot a long time ago. The people who don't have their act together financially do not qualify to be elders. People who can't take care of their own business shouldn't be sitting in a meeting talking about how to take care of God's business. Make sense? And so the point is, is that if you manage faithfully your own household, you may get into a position someday where you can help manage God's household carefully and responsibly and maturely. That's verse 11. Verse 10, little versus much. Verse 11, money versus people. And then verse 12, employee versus owner. And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, if you can't be a good employee, what would make you think you'd make a great boss? If you can't be faithful in working for someone else, what would make you think you'd be faithful when you're working for yourself? Here's a principle that's lost on a lot of people. Um, you have to work for money before money can work for you. You work hard in your 20s and 30s and 40s, and then someday you get to the place where money's working for you. That's an owner. All right? You work for money before money works for you. There's no shortcut. You have to make and spend less than you make. Make and spend less than you make. And eventually you get to the place where you have something that you can manage and then money begins to work for you. This is what people don't understand. It's amazing to look at our country and see families that have been in our country for generations and they still die penniless and to see other families that have immigrated in this first generation and the parents were so hard working and so disciplined that they worked and set aside and worked and set aside and worked and get inside and they broke bondage to immediate accumulation and through delayed gratification got themselves to a place of strength for themselves and for future generations. This is happening every day all around us. Start early, God sees it. God sees it. God will bless it. Start early. 1% of our country's people have 30% of its wealth. 10% of our country's people have 70% of our country's wealth. And a lot of Christians, if you even talk about this, they're like, that don't matter, that don't matter, I'm going to heaven. Dove. Serpent too. Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Shrewd and precise and insistent and loving and kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. 
He wants both. He wants both. In business matters, shrewd. It's not personal. In personal matters, loving and tender and kind. Turn to your neighbor and say he wants both. And then this. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Can't do it. So here's the thing. Fire a master. Every person here, if you've got two masters, you can't have two masters. Jesus is saying, I'd rather not be your master. All stand down. Instead of having to constantly compete with money for control of your life. Now, if you believe that things can make you happy, money is your master and you need to fire him. If you constantly think about accumulation and what you can get next, money is your master and you need to fire him. If you resent what others have because you haven't done what they've done, money is your master and you need to fire him. It's time to settle that. Jesus is so clear here. You can't have two masters. I'll just stand down. You think money's better than me? You think it's more important than me? Money's nothing, it's just a tool. It's nothing. The fact that you're so wound up about it is proof that it's just too important to you. Time to fire money as your master. Jesus Christ wants to be your master and to master money in your life. Time to get a little more shrewd. Now, Dave Ramsey um, is uh, well known uh, for his book, The Total Money Makeover. His radio program about money is heard on hundreds and hundreds of secular stations. He's followed by all kinds of people that don't even know he's a follower of Jesus. Uh, his uh, teaching series, Financial Peace University, is used in many places by many people in our church. And this guy is in great demand. I'm actually blown away by the fact that he thinks enough of us and what we're doing to record this video for us about a big first step, which is to get out of debt. Watch this. Hey, Harvest Bible Chapel. This is Dave Ramsey. My pastor has a neat saying. He says a man with an experience is not at the mercy of a man with an opinion. He's, of course, referring to meeting Jesus and walking with Jesus versus someone who has an opinion from an atheist or an agnostic viewpoint. In my case, though, it applies a little differently. You see, when I got out of school, I was broke, and I married my wife, Sharon, and we started buying and selling real estate, and we got rich, at least by a kid from Antioch, Tennessee's standards. But I had done some really stupid things. Oh, nothing immoral, and I didn't lie or cheat anybody. I just borrowed too much money. It was 20-something years ago, and those days were not unlike the period of time we just went through where real estate got hammered, and I got hammered with it. I spent the next two and a half years of my life losing everything I owned. We were sued, we were foreclosed on, and finally with a brand new baby, a toddler, and our marriage hanging on by a thread, finally we were bankrupt. I met God on the way up, but I got to know him on the way down. And one of the things that happened as we went down was I started reading and understanding what the Bible has to say about money because I did not want to duplicate that stupidity I had been through. It hurt. I didn't want to go back because I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I got a Ph.D. in D-U-M-B. I know what this stuff looks like. Most people have given their lives away to death. They've become modern-day slaves. You know, slaves don't have choices. And slaves are seldom generous. And so we've gone on a crusade to show people what the Bible says about money. In particular, what it says about this thing called debt. And we've taught people how to get out of debt and set them free. Because when you don't have any payments, you know what you've got? Options. You can be generous. You can save and invest. You can change your family tree instead of giving all your money to someone else. 
starting to feel that that slavery thing is the truth? Well, God's word is the truth. It'll set you free. And, and, and that's what we're about. So how does this apply practically? Well, we tell people this. List all your debts, smallest to largest, and attack them in that order. I mean, attack them with a vengeance. Did you know stupidity has a gravitational pull? <laughs> it does. Some of us, we put our lives in orbit around stupidity. And the orbit, it's deteriorating, and we're going to crash into stupid. You know how you break an orbit? You have to put out a huge amount of energy to break an orbit. So when you're locked in a gravitational pull of, in the gravitational pull of stupid, to get out of that, you've got to bust into it. And that's how you get out of debt. You've got to sell so much stuff the kids think they're next. You've got to get fired up and take six extra jobs. Your broke friend's got to be making fun of your life. And then you're on your way out of debt. And you list your debts, smallest to largest. You pay minimum payments on everything but the little one. And you attack that little one. When that debt's gone, you use the money you used to pay there. And every, every other dollar you can squeeze out of the budget. And you attack the next one down. Then you attack the next one down. And every time you pay off one of those debt, you, debts, you've got more money, that old payment that you don't have anymore, to attack the next one down. That snowball rolls over. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We call this the debt snowball. We want to encourage you to live your lives in a way that the Bible indicates is best. God loves you. He's got a plan for you. And he wrote you a letter called His Word. And in there are some hints, some secrets, some principles, some processes on handling money. One of those is if you get out of debt and stay out of debt, you'll have more money. Sounds kind of basic, doesn't it? Well, sometimes God is very simple to understand, but it's very hard to live. I challenge you. You can do this debt-free thing. Thanks, guys. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go. But to keep in mind these uh, folders we passed out, this is where I'm keeping my diagnostics that I've worked on. And uh, you can go in here and uh, get your own uh, online. If you just go to our website, the diagnostic for this week is just a financial worksheet.
So I hope that you've been really encouraged today through this clear teaching from God's word. I just want to thank you from the whole team for listening to the James McDonald podcast, where the learning is for loving, loving God and for loving others more and more until we see him face to face. Thank you for standing with us. Your prayerful support is our lifeline to continue this gospel partnership, and it makes podcasts like these possible. If you're not part of a vibrant, life-giving gospel church, check out this new alternative. It's called the Home Church Network. You can get it at homechurchnetwork.global. All the ministry information, Bible teaching, and and resources are there, and also at jamesmcdonaldministries.org. Hey, thank you again for listening.